Welcome to Home Space and Reason, a podcast about creating a home that thrives. Hi there, I'm Christina Browning, your host. If you know your home could be so much more than it is, I discuss home functionality, aesthetics, and automation. I'm a realtor in Portland, Oregon, and a home functionality coach for anyone with video conferencing capabilities, no matter where you live. I geek out on every subject imaginable regarding your home and yard, challenging you to think of your space differently to get the most out of every square foot. I post questions for you to think through about your space and your reason. This podcast is all positive, offering you virtual fist bumps and celebrating every win. Remember, there's no such thing as perfect, but you can still aim for your best every day. In this episode, let's discuss home functionality and safety. Episode 53. I'm going to tell you a parallel story about a house and the woman who occupies it. It's a fascinating and educational story filled with ups and downs, wallpaper and loss, hope and satisfaction. What makes a home feel homey? What makes it feel comforting? And what makes a home feel like a warm embrace? Jessica is a historic home remodeler, inspirational storyteller, lover of design and photography, and someone who I am privileged enough to call my friend. We share a love for homes and the slow journey of discovering what makes each one special. We both love deep diving into a topic to learn more and honoring the history of a home. I would love to start off by telling you the backstory in the words written by Jessica herself, who authored her story on her blog called thankfulbungalow.com. It reads, as a teenager, I began to tremor while lifting weights. So much so that students nicknamed me Shakes in high school. I would often pass out on my walk home from the gym and remember the feel of frozen blacktop on my face as my body hit the ground and the doubt that filled my stomach as my friendly pediatrician assured me, this kind of thing happens to young girls. Don't worry, you'll grow out of it. Despite that, I won a golf scholarship at a Division I level, the highest competition level for college athletics. But I developed exercise intolerance, and my athletic ability declined as my list of symptoms grew longer. I tore my right hip flexor, and my right shoulder constantly shifted out of place. Cold weather triggered excruciating sharp pain at my skull base. I developed a forward head posture and a hump on my neck. I could not tolerate medications. I often felt foggy-headed and had bone-crushing fatigue. The smell of perfume, cleaning products, and cinnamon-scented pine cones at the front of the craft store during the holiday season triggered migraine headaches and made my skin burn. Somehow, I graduated from college with honors in only three years, married my longtime boyfriend, 
and moved from Portland to Philadelphia. Shortly after moving, migraine headaches and bouts of bed-spinning vertigo debilitated me. I couldn't sleep because of restless legs and widespread body pain, and I got serotonin syndrome from the first anxiety medication I had taken. To this day, when I hear Enya on the radio, I associate her beautiful voice with this horrible time in my life. During the next two years, we moved to Chicago and then San Francisco for my husband's career. With every new city came new doctors with more diagnoses, depression, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, mitral valve prolapse syndrome, pituitary tumors, perilymphatic fistula, Meniere's disease, seasonal allergies, asthma, trigeminal neuralgia, and migraine-associated vertigo. I tried eight different migraine medications for six weeks each, and none of them dampened my agony. As endocrinologists surgically debulked the pituitary tumor and some of my symptoms improved for a while, finally, I thought, we found the smoking gun. I ended my marriage and moved to Portland, where I began a new job at the second largest private public relations agency in the world. I penned letters on behalf of high-profile clients like Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer, facilitated media requests from top-tier publications, and helped launch life-changing products. But my life was much the same. I was running on fumes and collapsed into bed at night after taking Benadryl and Excedrin and used all 30 days of paid time off to rest and recover at home when work was just too much for my body. My new endocrinologist thought the remainder of my pituitary tumor could be triggering my body to produce too much cortisol as my weight skyrocketed almost 80 pounds. For months, I drew dozens of blood samples from a PICC line in my arm, collected my urine in an orange plastic jug for 24 hours, and bottled samples of my saliva at midnight. A surgeon inserted a catheter in a leg artery, popped it under my skull and into my pituitary so that he could draw a blood sample, and I still remember the sound of flushed saline gurgling at the base of my brain. I again improved with some surgery, but my doctor dismissed my remaining symptoms. One year later, my endocrinologist admitted me to the hospital for suspected adrenal insufficiency. High heart rate and low blood pressure triggered a code blue while resting in a hospital bed. A rapid response team rushed me into the intensive care unit and filled my lungs with air. After three days in the ICU, 10 days in the hospital, and thousands of dollars in testing, a circle of doctors delivered a diagnosis. Mental illness. Part of me couldn't blame them. My symptoms changed rapidly and ping-ponged across multiple body systems. One day I would complain of not being able to swallow. The next day I doubled over with stomach pain and had what looked like seizures but did not show up on a test. The endocrinologist I had grown to trust over the past three years came into my room and said, You're making it hard for me here and I'm embarrassed. I want you to leave. 
I want to be evaluated by a psychiatrist, I demanded. I had seen a neurologist, a gastroenterologist, a cardiologist, a rheumatologist, a pulmonologist, an endocrinologist, and a hospitalist, but not a psychiatrist. How could they arrive at that diagnosis? Because my presentation stumped them. A psychiatrist is the only qualified medical professional to determine whether or not my symptoms were psychological. After listening to me talk openly for an hour at my bedside, the psychiatrist said, you are well-adjusted for everything you've experienced. You may have some secondary anxiety, and I would worry about you if you did not. But I do not think all your physical symptoms are a result of mental illness. I thought the doctors would keep looking, but they sent me home. That hospital file followed me like a scarlet letter for years. We always knew that we wanted to get a fixer-upper. Um, John is a superintendent for a local commercial construction company, and he's owned and flipped a couple of homes. And I've always loved old homes and just wanted to find a home that we could make our own and that had potential. So we started our search the beginning of 2017. Home prices in Clark County had gone up 9 to 10% in the previous year. And we were trying to look in the $300,000 price range so that we would have monthly money left over to remodel the home. We made 12 offers. We had two sales fall through. One fell through right at the end. And then I think we withdrew two offers. But it was during that time when like a house would go on the market and you would show up an hour later and people would be lined around the block waiting to get in. I remember one house we went to, we showed up two hours after it went live, loved it. Our agent called the listing agent and said, we want to make an offer. And she said, oh, we just accepted one. So we were just getting beat out by investors with all cash offers and buyers with better terms. We were trying to go FHA and then switched over to conventional. This is like the worst timing. We have roofers are up on the roof right now, putting the new roof on. And then downstairs, we usually do all the like interior stuff ourselves, but we hired a couple painters and they're downstairs. And you know how it goes. Like they were supposed to be finished a couple days ago and they're still working. So this is, this is like my life for the last three years. Pretty typical. <laughs> no problem. Roofers on the roof. So tell me the rest of the story. I got to know how you eventually came upon the house that you have now. This one fell into our lap. It sounds cheesy. I mean, everyone kept saying like, hang in there, don't give up. One day we went to look at a house and we walked out the front door and a tree had fallen on my car. And I was like, the world is literally telling us not to buy a house right now. <laughs> it took us 10 months to find this home. Yeah, I remember the day that we got this house. It was a really sad day. My husband's dog, Gertie, was 13 years old and she was really sick and I had to put her down that day. And so I was sitting at the dinner table with John and I, you know, had these big black crocodile tears coming down my face. And I was like, John, oh my gosh, like this house just came on the market. It's in downtown Camas, which we love. Family Circle Magazine said that it was one of the top 10 cities for families in the U.S. It was an old house. It's a 1910 house. So it was exactly what we were looking for. We were the first people in to see it. And we wrote up our offer that night. We sent a love letter with it. We 
made, you know, a full price offer and they accepted it the next day. They told us that the love letter was the reason that we got the home. So I think that's important, you know, if you're looking for a home, tell the current owner what that home would mean to you, why it would be so important to you and your family. It's funny because when you look at the real estate photos of the house, the house looked like it was in pretty good shape. It really wasn't. I mean, the foundation was an issue. It was good enough that it passed inspection. And actually, our inspector said it was in great condition for the age of the home. And you can tell that it had been taken really good care of. But the first night that we slept in the house, our bed would roll across the floor because the floor was sloped so bad. The previous owner didn't make good use of the space. So basically the kitchen had like a fridge floating in the middle of the kitchen. One of the walls was like totally unused. And so we took that space and it was an eight foot wall and we made like a seven foot floor to ceiling pantry. The floors were the original floors, but they smelled like cat urine. And so we had to tear out all the floors. We got the keys the day before Thanksgiving And Thanksgiving Day, we completely demoed the downstairs. The next week, we moved out of our apartment into our home, and we were living upstairs, which upstairs had no heat, no air conditioning. It was the middle of wintertime. There was so much dust from the demo that we had done downstairs that we brought in hospital-grade air scrubbers. And I was sleeping with a dust mask on next to an air scrubber with no heat in the middle of November. And I remember saying to John, like, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can live here. (laughs) You get used to it. That's just how it was. My health journey really starts when I was 18 years old. But when we moved into this house is when like things just really spiraled out of control. About a year ago, I started having seizure-like episodes and dystonia stroke-like episodes where I couldn't move my body. I couldn't talk. I would go to the emergency room and I would say, something's wrong with me. I don't know what's going on. The first time I went to the ER, they said, you probably have MS, but we can't get you into the clinic until February. And this was July. (laughs) And so in July, I went to the ER again. They admitted me to the hospital and I would get up to walk and I would just instantly collapse. More words from her journal. My gait was different. I walked like I was wearing a bulky diaper, and I collapsed as I made my way back to bed. There is no physical reason you would collapse that fast, said the doctor. You faked your leg weakness when I evaluated you in the emergency department, too. You could hear the desperation in my voice as tears filled my eyes. And I said, I am not faking this. Why would I fake this? He waved my file in the air and said, you have a very long history of problems that nobody has been able to solve. One of the nurses when I was there happened to tell me, you know, I noticed that when you stand up and get out of bed that your heart rate skyrockets and that's not normal. So when you go home, look up POTS, which is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And I did, I went home and I remember I was sitting on a couch and I stumbled across the study that was done and it was talking about these three diseases that go hand in hand. It was Ehlers-Danlos, POTS and mast cell activation syndrome. And I just knew in my gut that that's what I had. One gene mutation links three mysterious debilitating diseases. 
grief rolled over me like a freight train as I curled up into a ball alone on that couch. Sometimes in life, you know something to be right in your gut before an expert validates that truth. I knew this weird trifecta with no known cure was what was wrong with me, and it would take five more months for an expert to tell me I was correct. But what's five months when you've waited 23 years? If I knew then what I know now about my health, buying a fixer-upper is probably the worst possible decision that I could have made because I have something called mast cell activation syndrome. So like if you get stung by a bee, you have little mediators that will go and they will put histamine there and get rid of the swelling, right? But my mast cells react inappropriately. So things like dust and mold, I'm really extremely sensitive to. There's so much dust when you're doing construction. When we moved in here, I noticed that I started having more intense health symptoms. So like, just I always felt like my throat was closing up. I was having this kind of deep cough that never went away, feeling brain fog, sore joints all these different things. It just was like, what in the heck is going on? It really started from the beginning of demo and just got worse throughout the last three years. I found the local expert and she had a year long wait list. And I thought I'm going to be dead by then. Like I can't wait that long. And so I found her personal email and I sent her a letter and I got an advocate at the hospital who contacted the practice manager and After about four weeks, the doctor called me and said, can I see you this Saturday? I mean, I really feel like she saved my life because I'd had MRIs before, but they didn't know what to look for. And this doctor knew exactly what measurements to look for to prove that basically my skull was crushing my brainstem. My neck ligaments weren't strong enough to hold my skull and my head in place. And so that's what was causing all of these neurological symptoms. Of course, we were finding this out right at the beginning of COVID and the shutdowns. And so then just as I had finally gotten diagnosed after 20 years of wondering what the heck is wrong with me and all of a sudden, you know, my symptoms going crazy, we had to wait for surgery. And there's only five surgeons in the world that are considered accomplished enough to perform this surgery. It's a really, really risky surgery. It's pretty complicated. And so the surgeon that I decided on seeing is in Washington, D.C. He had a phone call with me and I told him what was going on. And he said, well, surgery is closed right now. I have 30 patients on the wait list waiting for surgery. And he said, but I'm going to triage you to number one. Two weeks later, he called and said, come on down, like we're ready for you. So the timing kind of worked out in the end. Definitely saved my life. Two weeks ago, we finally demoed the downstairs bathroom. That was the one room that we hadn't demoed. I said to John, I was like, I just have a gut feeling that there's mold in there. The reason I felt that way was because I'd been exposed to mold before. I kind of knew what it felt like when I was tested for mold at the doctor's office, they actually had to give me an injection of epinephrine because I have such a strong reaction to mold. So every time I was in that bathroom, which didn't have any sort of ventilation, I just felt 
sick. So he demoed it and he was like, we didn't find any mold in there. I went downstairs to look. And as soon as I walked into the room, I started dry heaving. And I actually had to run to the kitchen sink and I threw up. So I knew that there was mold in there. And I went back in and he had left the ceiling on and he was just going to overlay the ceiling. I was like, there's got to be mold underneath that. So he pulled that down. There was like a three foot square section of mold on the sheetrock. And then so the mold was growing on the framing. And so John actually reframed the entire bathroom to make sure that there was zero mold in there because it can it can be in your wood and you not know it it can be in books anything that has like a soft porous texture mold can be in there and it can be making you sick and you're not even seeing it and luckily like I know enough about mold and remediation that we knew how to get rid of it and doing a mold detox right now and then in two weeks we're doing what's called a Hermi test and you collect your dust and send it in. And then a lab will tell you how much mold is still in your home. And then at that point, you can bring in remediators if you need to. It's hard for me to say how much the mold made my health worse. But there's definitely a lot of talk now, especially in like the chronic fatigue circle about mold and mold exposure and how that can make your symptoms worse. I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is, it's a connective tissue disorder. And basically you have lax ligaments. So I always kind of compare it to like a house that's made with cheap materials. Like over time, it's just going to break down and collapse and problems are going to start happening. In the Ehlers-Danlos community, they're talking about how it's really possible that mold can actually weaken your connective tissues even more and make your ligaments and your muscles sticky. And so it probably made my problems worse. I feel actually very thankful that we moved into this house because it triggered my symptoms and made them worse. And if we hadn't moved into this house, I think I would have just kept going through life thinking something's not quite right with me, but just brushing it off and deciding this is just my life. I'm just going to be sick all the time. I'm not going to be able to do what other people do. And I think moving in here and the mold and the dust and everything that goes along with remodeling the stress of it all, I think my cup just overfilled and forced me to figure out what was going on. An article in Psychology Today by Christopher Berglund outlines what Jessica has taught us about the three components of self-compassion. Number one, the ability to be kind and forgiving towards oneself and less self-critical. Number two, recognizing that the human experience is inherently riddled with varying degrees of pain, suffering, and difficulty. And number three, the ability to be consciously aware of disturbing thoughts and upsetting emotions from moment to moment without letting these negative feelings become all-consuming or ruin your day. This house is it's a three bedroom house and the downstairs we turned into a den and the upstairs has two bedrooms, a master bedroom and a guest bedroom. And I feel like people usually have a guest bedroom and it sits there and it's not used and it's just kind of dusted off when you have that once in a while guest. 
but John and I knew that we were going, that I was going to have surgery and we made the decision to turn that guest bedroom into a healing room for me. And so when I designed it, I really thought about what, what can I do to this room to make it feel like a safe place for me to recover? So like, I'm a huge fan of wallpaper. I would wallpaper every room in my house if I could. And so this room, I'm actually sitting in it right now. Every single wall in it is wallpapered and it's just this pretty neutral floral print. And when my friends come over and I show them the house and they walk in this room, they all are like, this room is so cozy. And that was the feeling that I wanted to create in here. We put a five foot bench seat in and I put cover on it with my favorite Pendleton fabric. You know, we don't have can lights in here. We have sconces and so the lighting's nice and it's on the east side of the house. When I wake up in here, it just makes me feel happy. And some people think it's weird. You know, John like sleeps in the in the master bedroom and I sleep in the guest bedroom a lot of times. But I think when you're healing, it's so important to get good sleep. And so not only do I sleep in this room and he's in the other room, but we went out and we purchased a new mattress that's really comfortable and we got a great mattress topper for it. And one day I'm going to get linen sheets for this bed. It's not in the budget right now, but when we're done remodeling, it's going to have great sheets and I'm going to have a chair in the corner where I can sit and read and look out the back window and at the you know mature trees that we have with flowers blooming and I think it's going to be it's going to be awesome. It's like my little quiet place. The surgery that I had is a major surgery and the neurologist told me to expect an 18 month recovery and I'm at six months right now so I'm a third of the way through. The main difference that I notice is that I feel stable. I don't feel like I'm constantly worrying about going to the emergency room. Like I was having 10 seizures a day at one point, was worried that I was going to die. And I don't feel that way anymore. I feel really stable. My head is fused to my spine. And so I can't move my head sideways. So I'm having to get used to that. Like things like blow drying your hair, like looking over your shoulder to see how your butt looks in the mirror. I can't do those kind of things anymore. So I'm getting used to that. You know, the surgery saved my life, but I still have three rare diseases. And so I'm always going to be managing those. It's really difficult. You know, I'm already facing the possibility of three more surgeries. So that's why I think this room is so important and having a home you know, that is warm and inviting. And, you know, when we built this place, we thought about how can I design a space that promotes healing or what activities that are like daily chores, like washing the dishes, how can I elevate that experience to like a daily meaningful ritual? You know, like having wooden brushes with like the nice natural bristles and a smelly hand soap that maybe evokes a memory and that's, you know, a clean, non-toxic product. Stuff like that I really thought about and I still think about self-care, but also just as important as like community care. Because I really believe that you can't get better unless you have the support of your friends and your family and your community. And so we also think about how can we make this home a place that invites connection. So earlier, I posed a question, what makes a home feel homey and what makes your home feel like a warm embrace? 
the design process is a part of it. So we went through each room and I thought, how can I bring things like connection, joy, nourishment, creativity, self-care to all these rooms? So I would just say whatever is important to you and that you want to bring into your life, think about how you can do that through design. So one example would be we made that bathroom a place that just felt like a healing space with the coffee tub and I keep my bath crystals next to it. This morning, actually, I got up before the sunrise and before the workers got here and I turned on the bath and hopped in there before they showed up at eight. Another example is the kitchen. I said, let's do like a seven foot long floor to ceiling pantry and we can stock it with gluten-free flowers. And so the first thing I did when it was done was I went out and I bought like 12 canisters and then went online and ordered different kinds of flowers so that I could still bake, which is something that I love, but and do it in kind of a healthy healing way. A lot of the charm was stripped from this house when we moved in. And I think a huge goal of ours was to come back in and restore some of that charm and kind of like bring it back to 1910 in a current way. John always says he wanted to make my Pinterest dreams come true. (laughs) So when we moved into this house, I planned that every wall in the house was going to be white. Like it was going to be just a very clean, classic white look. And my husband, John, we call him Mr. Filson. He wears like plaid and, you know, he's just this very outdoorsy hunter, fisher type guy. And we wanted to make the home look and feel like him too. And so now like we just painted a cabinet, like dark, dark green. All our doors are painted black. We're putting up dark wallpaper. The den is going to be dark gray and kind of have like I picture like a leather Chesterfield sofa and like club chairs and kind of like maybe a gun cabinet to make it feel like a men's like hunt club or smoking room or something. So my style has definitely evolved over the years. (laughs) So the entire upstairs has been remodeled. The downstairs is remodeled except for the bathroom, which is completely gutted. And we have a mudroom off of the kitchen. I mean, I'd say we're like 90% done. The exterior project just started. So right now there's roofers upstairs. And then we're going to be residing the house, tearing off the front porch and doing a complete front porch rebuild. And then landscaping, which is probably two years from now. And I'm probably going to need your help with like color for the house. <laughs> you know, I'll be there for you. That's yeah. awesome. And now for the questions to ask yourself about your home space and your reason specific to mold, which I'll credit to allergyandair.com, a website specific to indoor air quality, which I'll cite and link to in the podcast notes. Question number one, when is the last time I cleaned my windowsills? We often don't spend a lot of time examining our windowsills, but they're a prime place for mold to start and spread. Windows are frequently exposed to moisture from condensation, and they only get decent airflow during the summer months if the windows are open. The dirt that accumulates in the grooves of the sills supplies valuable food to spores, and they can grow quickly. To prevent mold in your windowsills, be sure to wipe down windows when you see a lot of condensation and clean out the window tracks periodically to remove the mold's food source. Question number two, when is the last time I checked my refrigerator drip pan? 
the pans used to collect condensation for our refrigerators are rarely seen, so they're easy to forget about. There's not a lot of air circulation under the fridge in most homes, and what is out of sight usually is out of mind. Sometimes food from spills collects in there as well, and this creates a perfect breeding ground for mold spores. Make a yearly appointment to clean out the drip pan using water and white vinegar. If you notice a lot of mold growth, increase the cleanings to twice per year. Question number three. If you have any sort of water leak in your room toward the ceiling or in the wall, chances are good that mold could be growing in your attic. The dust that accumulates in attics paired with little airflow makes a perfect environment for spores to thrive. Check your attic periodically for mold and make sure there are air vents to aid circulation to the area. If you have any roof leaks, get them repaired immediately. It's best to regularly have your roof inspected to catch any leaks before they cause a serious problem and especially after a heavy rainstorm or other harsh weather. Question number four. Do I have a front-loading washing machine? The popular new front-loading washing machines may be great for high efficiency, but they are notorious for off odors as a result of mold growth. The gasket around the door is wet all the time when the washer is running and doesn't get to dry out because the door is usually closed when the machine is not in use. This creates a perfect atmosphere for mold to grow. You can either leave the door open after running a load to let the gasket dry, or you can wipe the gasket with a cloth when you're done washing. If mold already exists in the gasket, kill it with a bleach solution and monitor the area to make sure the mold does not return. Question number five. Do I have one or several real chimneys? Depending how well a chimney is capped off, it might take in a good amount of water from rain and snow. Plus, it's likely leaves and other organic materials are entering the space, and all this combines to create perfect conditions for mold to grow. The porous surfaces of bricks and mortar only add to the problem. To prevent mold growth in your chimney, first make sure the top is covered appropriately, then it's best to call in a professional chimney cleaner. Last question, do I have pets and carpet? Moisture from concrete floors or wet paws from pets can easily make its way into the carpet. If you have pets who occasionally have accidents on the carpet, this can increase the potential for mold spores to grow there. If your carpet starts to smell odd or seems damp, unfortunately, it's probably too late. It's already growing. The simplest way to prevent mold growth on carpet or padding, regardless of moisture level, is to keep the carpet clean. Dirt encourages mold growth. By vacuuming at least once per week and having your carpets cleaned periodically, you can prevent spores from blooming in your carpet. But I personally would simply recommend getting rid of the carpet altogether. It's far easier to keep a floor clean if it's not carpeted. And this is multiplied if you have pets. Pets and carpet go together as much as putting carpet in the bathroom. Maybe just don't. Here's another side note. Did you know that wallpaper can actually hide mold? Unless you're removing paper from your walls, you're unlikely to know if mold spores are growing behind it. If the paper is older, 
or has peeling edges, it's possible mold has begun spreading where you can't see. If you suspect you might have a mold problem, it's best to just get the paper removed and replaced. If you know for a fact that there's a great deal of mold behind the paper, don't remove it yourself. Instead, hire a trained professional to get rid of it and sterilize the area. Only a pro will know how to prevent huge amounts of spores from launching into the air when the paper is removed. If you want to have decorative paper on your walls, treat the surface first with a mold-resistant primer. Use a high-quality paste to adhere the wallpaper, and be sure to remove all the air bubbles from behind it. Don't use wallpaper in moist areas like bathrooms or basements. Mold is present in most places, especially when you live in more wet parts of the world like the Pacific Northwest. Fortunately, a little diligence and education can go a long ways. There's a guy in Seattle that's like really well known in the mold world and he comes down and like crawls in the spaces that you would never want to crawl in and looks for mold and he does like infrared scanning and stuff. And the thing with mold is like, it can be in your house and you don't know it because it could be in a wall where you don't see it, but maybe you have a leak or it could have been in your house at one time and it was removed, but it wasn't removed in the right way. And so like mold releases these little tiny things called mycotoxins and those toxins let off gases are actually called mold farts, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> if you're feeling sick, like if you're moving to a house and you're having headaches, or brain fog, or you're feeling tired or sick all the time, you might want to look at your house. And actually, yesterday I was getting physical therapy and she was telling me that she has another client who is often working in places away from his home. And with the pandemic, he's been stuck working at home and he started getting really, really sick. And so they looked into like what in his house could be making him sick and it ended up being mold. And he is seen by a mold specialist and he, they tested his blood and he had like the highest amount of toxic mold in his system than any, anyone else that this doctor had previously tested. I'm actually really thankful that we found the mold because I think that that is a huge player in what's been making me so sick. The ERMI test, E-R-M-I, ERMI test is a great first step if you think you may have mold in your home. If you suspect mold problems in your home or you just want to make sure there are no issues but don't have any clear water damage or visible mold growth, then an ERMI test kit is the best option. Use this kit to collect dust samples around the house and submit it for mold DNA testing. They'll determine your environmental relative moldiness index which is what ERMI stands for, based on the quantity of DNA for 36 molds in your dust sample. One thing Jessica told me later, she said mold can even cause paralysis. She said when she found mold in the bathroom, she started having paralysis episodes again, and they had to live in a fifth wheel out front of her home for 10 days. Read more of Jessica's blog at thankfulbungalow.com. You can find her on Instagram under the same handle, thankfulbungalow, and more specific to her EDS story on Instagram under the handle, edsinspired. So I started the blog just as a way to keep my writing skills fresh. When we purchased the house, I decided that I wanted to kind of capture all of it 
on Instagram so that it would be like a photo album for us to go back to. And so I was really looking to connect with people that maybe were also old homeowners or had an interest in like the history of old homes or I wanted to connect with people in our community and it's really done that like it's amazing how we've met neighbors on Instagram that I honestly wouldn't have met otherwise they're five houses down and I guarantee I wouldn't have met them if we hadn't have been on Instagram so that's been great and people are so supportive and John's hilarious like if people walk by and they say oh we see you're remodeling your home he's like yeah come on in I'll show you what we've done <laughs> so we love that we want this house to be a place to connect with our community and like I said today is our three-year anniversary and hopefully someday we're going to have like a big community barbecue you have many options regarding what realtor to choose, and this podcast is a way for me to earn your trust and really understand who I am and the unique skill sets that I bring to the table. If you happen to know someone in the market to buy or sell in the greater metro Portland, Oregon area, kindly send them my way. The finest compliment I could ever receive is the confidence of your referral. Most of us know that getting a good night's sleep is important, but too few of us actually make our bedrooms and sleep experience a priority. Let's talk about our bedrooms because the room either supports us and our sleep or it hinders it. Close your eyes and think of a hotel suite that you've stayed in and adored. What components light you up? Let's discuss all the elements of a successful bedroom that's both indulgent and highly functional. Episode 16 is all about bedrooms. In her blog, Jessica goes on to say, My favorite bedtime story used to be when I told myself about the extraordinary life I would live if I weren't sick. If I were well enough to have children, I would make banana pancakes every morning, and they would wear sweaters I knit for them. No cereal from a box. I had an entire morning routine planned for a family I didn't have during a time I couldn't get out of bed. And I'm allergic to bananas. Every New Year's Eve, when the clock struck midnight, I thought maybe this will be the year I get my life back. Each birthday, I blew out candles on a rainbow chip cake and silently pleaded, please let this be the year that someone figures out what is wrong with me so I can get up and live again. You cannot let what you thought your life would look like rob you of joy in the present moment or gratitude for the gifts you have. This season or your entire life might look different than you expected and it might be darker and more uncomfortable than you'd hoped, but it can still be meaningful, more meaningful than you imagined. Those trials you're facing will strengthen you, build character and compassion, and remind you of what truly matters. Last month, with my head held surgically higher than any previous birthday, I blew out my candles and made a new wish. Instead of wishing to get my life back, I accepted that it was never really gone and said to myself, may I fully embrace this life, 
the one that is meant only for me. Thanks for sitting in on this conversation about creating a home that thrives. I'll meet you back here for the next episode. 